to this day, people still make the very same jokes that I heard when I was five years old. I mean, it was particularly a difficult name because I was growing up in a time and a place where it was just not tolerated to be so different and then to insist on being so different. At the same time, I was getting so many mixed messages. People would make fun of my name and then tell me in the next moment, but you should keep your name forever. It's a great name. And I would think, you're actually just lying to me right now because you don't want that name but you think that I should keep this name because somebody else gave it to me. And it made me think about how our sense of identity really gets mixed up in names that other people give to us. I'm Beth Nguyen, and I'm a modern minority. Great companies are all about the people. Good people become great leaders, mentors for work and life. Welcome to Learnings from Leaders, the PNG alumni podcast. I'm Andrew Tarvin, humor engineer. And I'm Roman Segel, recovering marketer. Andrew and I both got our start at P&G, the Procter & Gamble company, where we both had the opportunity to work with some amazing people. And as you may know, many leaders across industries got their start at P&G. In this series, through conversations with fellow P&G alums, we hope to go deeper with the leaders you already know but want to know more about, how they got their start, how they make it work, and what keeps them going. It's kind of like bringing a microphone to a cup of coffee, or in my case, hot chocolate. On today's show, we're talking to Beth Nguyen, an award-winning writer and professor. It was a great conversation about identity, adaption, and assimilation. In honor of AAPI Heritage Month, we wanted to share a conversation from my other podcast, Modern Minorities, which features minority voices for all of our majority years. Here's a quick bio about our guest. In real life, Bikman Nguyen goes by the name Beth. She's the author of books like Stealing Buddha's Dinner, Short Girls, Pioneer Girl, and Owner of a Lonely Heart. Her memoir and essays about post-refugee life coming out later this year. I first discovered Beth from her 2021 New Yorker article, America Ruined My Name For Me. We'll put a link in the show notes. Beth was actually born Bikmin Nguyen, and the story of her name change might come as a surprise to many of you. But as a child of immigrants and someone with a name that is hard to pronounce and often misspelled, I could really relate. So naturally, we had to speak with her. Beth's awards and honors include an American Book Award, a Penn Girard Award from the Penn American Center, a Breadloaf Fellowship, and Best Book of the Year honors from the Chicago Tribune and Library Journal. Best books have been included in community and university-read programs around the country. Her work has also appeared in numerous anthologies and publications, including The New Yorker, The Paris Review, The New York Times, and Literary Hub. Beth received an MFA in creative writing from the University of Michigan, where she won Hopwood Awards in fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. She's taught at Purdue University and the University of San Francisco and is currently a professor in the MFA program in creative writing at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. We hope you'll check out some of her work. So let's jump right in. We hope you like meeting our new friend, Beth. Beth, thank you so much for coming on the pod. It's great to have you here. Thank you for inviting me. So Beth, you're kind of infamous. I've read some of the fire you've been putting out there, but I got to ask the question, where are you from? Where am I from? <laughs> a really favorite question. Yeah, how yes. do you answer that? What's yeah, the first way you... you answer it? I answer that question, where are you from, completely differently depending on who is asking me that question. Interesting. So if it is a person that I perceive to be somewhat hostile, you know, like slightly passive aggressive white person, I will say, I'm from Michigan because that's where I grew up. And then I will refuse to give them the answer that they are looking for. However, if it's an Asian person, for example, who is asking me that, I'll tell them my whole story, which is I was born in Saigon, and that's technically where I'm from. Although my family left Saigon as refugees 
1975 when I was a baby. And then I did grow up in Michigan. Now, what if they're from Ohio? What do you say then? Oh, then we just talked about Michigan versus Ohio State. <laughs> so you what? were a baby then when you yeah. came over. And what brought them to Michigan? So when we left as refugees, we were just very lucky. My dad and my uncles were in the Army and the Navy, but they weren't high ranking or anything like that. We got out by sheer luck on April 29th, which was the day before the fall of Saigon and the end of that war. And we ended up in refugee camps in Guam and the Philippines. And then we were flown to the United States and were in a refugee camp in Arkansas. And from there, we were kind of given a couple of choices about where to be resettled. And we didn't really know anything about the United States or living in the United States. And my grandmother chose Michigan. She chose Michigan over California and Wyoming. So interesting. Well, do you know why? Yeah. What's grandma's rationale? We asked her that later in life. I was like, grandmother, Noy, we called her. What were you thinking? (laughs) Why didn't you choose California, basically? And she said that it was because when she was in Vietnam, she knew people whose children had gone to school at the University of Michigan. So she associated that state with education. And that's why she chose it. Wow. So when you get to Michigan or when your family gets to Michigan, were there, I mean, when refugees resettled, were they given five options or you just got to pick wherever you wanted? And I guess where I'm going with this is, were there other Vietnamese refugee families in the part of Michigan where you wound up growing up? Well, basically, no. (laughs) (laughs) But there are a lot now because we were the first wave. And the reason why we were settled in Michigan, or this particular part of Michigan, which is West Michigan, which is kind of the long shadow of Betsy DeVos and her family. It's a very conservative part of Michigan. We were resettled there because of very active churches financially sponsoring refugees. At that time in America, there was not huge widespread support for the resettlement of refugees. There, there really has never been. I was about to say, what's changed? <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that has not changed. But there were some churches that really believed in their mission, and they brought us and some other Vietnamese families to the area and kind of set us up with a place to live and then helped people find jobs. And then we were kind of on our own. So it was really difficult. I mean, I was a baby, so I wasn't really aware of it until I got a little bit older. But my earliest memories are very much infused with a sense of struggle and a sense of uncertainty. Are there any stories? Is there like a specific story you can recall that kind of, ex- not exacerbates, but illustrates like that, what you saw the struggle that your parents and your family was going through? Well, this is not a story that I experienced, but it's a story that my dad and my uncles tell about how little they knew about life in America in a very cold climate coming from <laughs> Saigon. Right. Winter. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Winter no. in Michigan. Yeah. And it was the winter after they had saved up money and bought a used car because you really, Michigan, you really need to have a car to get to your job. So they had a car, but what they didn't understand was ice on the windshield. Mm. And they didn't know how to, what, what to do with it. There's an ice storm, there's snow. What do you, how do you get ice off a windshield when it's freezing outside? 
they just didn't know. And in a pre-Google world, what do you do? You just kind of trial and error. So you know what they did? They boiled water and threw it on the windshield. Oh. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Bad choice. Yeah, which resulted in more ice on the windshield. <laughs> That's great. Were a lot of your early years in the community then centered around church because church was what had brought you over? No, actually, because we're Buddhist. <laughs> and so I think they really wanted us to be a Christian. Convert. Yeah, And I grew up with all of my neighbors who were white telling me, consistently telling me that I would go to hell, that I was going to rot in hell, that we were all going to rot in hell if we didn't convert and get baptized and all of that. But we were Buddhist, and so we kind of just didn't care and never <laughs> believed any of that talk. I mean, my friends would literally come over to my house and be like, you know, I'm really worried about your soul. And I'd be like, okay, that's fine. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. You want to go okay. ride bikes? <laughs> we just were completely unfazed by that, mostly. And my grandmother was, she helped establish one of the first Buddhist temples in that town. And that was our identity, was being Buddhist and being decidedly not Christian, which further set us apart from everyone else because we did live in a mostly white neighborhood. Sure. Were there moments when you felt like you had to do something that fit in? Or did that mindset of we are Buddhist, we are different, we are proudly unique stay with you? Oh, no. I spent my entire childhood trying to fit in. Yeah. Yeah. And even though I felt a lot of defiance about religion, I just didn't like kids my age telling me that they knew what was going to happen to my soul. <laughs> At the same time, I felt incredibly aware of how different I was. This is the 1980s. This is a time when people fully believed in assimilation and fully believed in concepts like the melting pot, which I actually still hear people say, which I find really disturbing. And that it was very hard not to internalize, impossible not to internalize a lot of those messages of how to be. And so, yeah, I spent most of my childhood watching television and watching white people and trying to figure out what, how do they live and how am I supposed to live and how are we supposed to be in the world? And so I very much a lot of code switching, a lot of behavior at home being very different from behavior out in the world. I mean, I, there's obviously sounds like a little umbrage with the term melting pot. Can we, I want to unpack that. I know what's wrong with it, but what's wrong with the melting pot? An American might say, that's what this country is about. What's the issue here? Well, I mean, if you think about fondue or things that melt in a <laughs> pot, <laughs> it's an amalgamation that requires loss of identity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in Michigan, Henry Ford was a big <laughs> supporter of this melting pot idea. He took it almost There literally. were some bigger issues with Henry Ford too, to be clear, but yes. <laughs> like in the 1910s and 1920s, he would make immigrant employees go through, I think what he called it, he called it the Ford English School. And when they graduated, he would have this melting pot ceremony where they would have a, a little gigantic melting pot on a stage and the employees would jump into it and then emerge dressed in different clothes and waving American flags. Wow. 
Yeah, I mean, subsuming an identity and losing something. In one of our earliest episodes, we got into a discussion with a Jamaican buddy of mine about that idea. It's like the melting pot is the issue. Why, why not chili, right? Chili retains all the flavors, but you retain the pieces of you. It's a yes and, not a no but, right? But interestingly, we're all going to be eaten. <laughs> okay, so what's the better <laughs> metaphor, Miss Author? Miss Fondue, chili, salad. It's We're all going to be eaten or consumed by the capitalist monsters. I don't know. It <laughs> sounds like doomsday. <laughs> so no food metaphors, but you've written about it now. Yeah, I actually love food metaphors. That's <laughs> Well, so okay, help me out then. Help me out then. If it's what's the better metaphor of what the American experience not necessarily is because there is assimilation was the name of the game. It's why I don't speak Hindi. It's what my parents needed in Alabama, right? But there's so much regret and loss that I feel even my dad to this day talks about, then what is the aspirational metaphor that we need to have for immigrants and refugees coming into this country and changing it? Because we're changing it just as much as it's changing us. Yeah, absolutely. I think if we're going with food metaphors, I would have to picture a very bustling, lively food market. Well, that even changes the, you're not being eaten. We're doing the ones, we're the ones doing the eating now. Yes, exactly. We're eating and we're also creating. Yeah. Yeah. And we're selling. We're making money from all of this. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, Beth said capitalism is bad. Didn't you hear her earlier? (laughs) No, I said the capitalist monsters are bad. It's it's really hard to live here and not be capitalist or be influenced by capitalism in some way the unwavering hand of the market. Beth, something, the thing that brought you to our attention was your article in The New Yorker. And it really hit me hard because of my own struggles with my name my entire life. You go by Beth now, but that was not the name your parents gave you. Can we talk about that a little? Yeah, definitely. So my given name, my birth name is Bick, and it's spelled B-I-C-H, and the I has an accent over it that nobody really uses, but it's pronounced big. It's a tonal, Vietnamese is a tonal language, but people would, we could call me big for instance, and that's what people would do. But the spelling of it is a bit of a challenge. Would make people laugh in an immature sort of way. I mean, more than laugh. I mean, to to this day, people still (laughs) make the very same jokes that I heard when I was five years old. They still make them today on Twitter. Adults. Do you know what I mean? So that progression of humor has not really changed too much. Uh, it was a difficult name. It was particularly a difficult name in But it has such a beautiful meaning. It has such a beautiful meaning, too. Because it means jade. Yeah. I mean, the reason why it was a difficult name was because it was a pre-progressive America, in a way. And I was growing up in a time and a place where that was just not... It was just not tolerated to be so different and then to insist on being so different. At the same time, I was getting so many mixed messages. People would make fun of my name and then tell me in the next moment, but you should keep your name forever. It's a great name. And I would think, you're actually just lying to me right now because you don't want that name, but you think that I should keep this name because somebody else gave it to me. And it made me think about how names and naming those they're so fraught. Those concepts are so fraught, and our sense of identity really gets mixed up in 
names that other people give to us. And the idea of, of taking control over that is a little bit scary. And it's also kind of defiant. So whenever over the years of my life, when I would maybe bring up to some friends or acquaintances that I was thinking of changing my name, people would get so angry. I mean, they would actually get angry with me. I had friends in, in the sense of how dare you give up your hair. Exactly. How dare you? I literally had friends say things like Asian friends or American friends. They were white friends. <laughs> I had white friends named Sally and Mary. Yeah, with like really beautiful names. Who very easy names. Easy is the better word. Yeah. Easy. To me, they were beautiful because they were easy. I mean, that to me that was the same thing. An easy name was a beautiful name. I didn't see any difference between those because it just meant that you were safe from yeah. That particular yeah. kind of ridicule. Uh, yeah, I, but they would say to me, you're going to break my heart if you change your name or I will never call you by some other name or you're just going to be betraying your whole family and your heritage. And it was very embarrassing and sort of shameful to hear these. And then uh, it would take me a while to realize, wait a minute, why is some white person lecturing me about how I should feel about my family or my cultural heritage? I struggled with my name my entire life. Somehow, my parents decided to give my elder sister an American-sounding name, and they gave me a weird Indian-sounding name that got mispronounced and butchered to this day. I literally have to make the joke about rum and coke to get people to understand how to say my name. My wife and I, we have a daughter. By the time this episode airs, we might have another child too, but we chose to give a Western name for our child, even though my wife is Chinese American and I'm Indian American, because it's that. That's literally the conscious choice that we're making. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because beauty is simplicity is I don't want my kid to have to deal with the shit I had to with my name. And my mm -hmm. dad says, oh, your name is beautiful. It's like, yeah, but your name's easy. It's Raj. Come on, man. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like, I don't mind a quote unquote name that has ethnic and cultural heritage to it. But you have to let it live and breathe in the culture the kid's going to be in, man. Did you have siblings with different names, Beth? My siblings had easier Vietnamese names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there are some easy, I mean, they, my parents, if they had named me Lin, which yeah, is a, a Vietnamese name, yeah. I would not have gone through this particular crisis. I would have chosen a different crisis. But my, yeah, my kids, <laughs> my, my kids have very straightforward, easy names. Is your or husband Vietnamese or is he American? Yeah, my husband, my partner is white. And our kids do have very simple, straightforward names, which I wanted on purpose because I know from personal experience how much yeah. easier life yeah. is when your name is easy. And the other thing that, that was not in the New Yorker article was about how my decision to start going by Beth, which was many years in the making, that was partly because I had kids. And I realized, oh, at some point, kids have to talk about their parents and say their parents' names and things like that. And well, I just- we, Don't we know. live in a more woke- I mean, 1980s Michigan or Alabama, are kids crueler now or are they more woke and understanding with an ethnic name, I guess? I think they are more understanding, but they're not that understanding. Is it also because your name is close to another and, word? And, and you know what? They don't necessarily have the most understanding parents and teachers. Uh, we, we just don't. Interesting. Yeah. It's, it's a hard thing to yeah. gauge. I mean, when, when you look at how a school curriculum is set up and you realize that things 
aren't that different from the way they were when I was in school? Like, why are students in high school reading so many of the same books that I read? It's bizarre. That should not be, it's weird. It's shouldn't be that static. So no, I don't actually trust, <laughs> I don't trust any idea of social progress exactly when it comes to like a school playground or what have yeah. you. Yeah. Playground and, rules. Yeah. Playground rules haven't changed. Maturity. Exactly. It's funny when we were picking my daughter's name, there's a little bit of the, okay, let's put it through the, how can we make fun of it filter? Literally, you kind of have to do that because playground rules will always exist. Yeah. And I mean, one of the cool things is that I've heard from a lot of people who have really interesting names. I don't think of names in terms of good or bad. I'm fascinated with names because I have an interesting name. So I've heard from a lot of people with interesting names and they all have all these, everyone has an emotional journey with their names, yeah. basically. Yeah. So how did your parents feel about you changing your name? Never mind your friends, your woke white friends, your, your Vietnamese parents who gave you your name. Oh, my parents were completely against it. That's why I didn't change my name when I was a kid, because they thought You wanted it was, to back then? You wanted to? I did. I wanted to. And they got really mad about it. And they took it as a sign of disrespect. And then I felt so bad about that, that I never brought it up again. And then I thought, well, this is just my lot in life. I just need to deal with it. And I did for a really long time. But the relief of deciding one day, I'm just going to go buy something else, was a shock to me <laughs> to realize like, how much a person can carry around. And then if you just let it go one day, what does that, what does that even mean? Right. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit more about that moment. You do write about it in the article, but you just mentioned it was it was a long time coming. You had thought about it, especially after you had kids. What was the moment that you had just felt like it was the right time? Yeah, I've been trying to write I had been trying to write that essay for eight years. And it it actually started with that moment, which was at a Shake Shack in New York. Yeah. And we, but we we all have our Starbucks or our Shake Shack name. Those of us with weird names. Exactly. I'm I'm Roman. When I get takeout oh, or reservations, I'm Roman. Right. That's that makes sense. Yeah. And they were always calling out people's names at Shake Shack. So what there was just one day I said Beth. And I had never used that name before. It just kind of emerged. I usually I usually used names from the Golden Girls. <laughs> Which one? Now now I really got to know. Yeah. Come on. Sophia. Sophia, yeah. That's a good <laughs> and, one. And Rose. I, I think Blanche and Dorothy are a little harder to pull off. Right. But I think right. Rose and Sophia are very, they're pretty basic. Yeah. So I would use those names a lot. But then one day I just said Beth and I was at the Shay Shack. And when I said it, I just felt like a different person. And of course, the woman who was taking my order, it's not like she was going to call me out. <laughs> She was like, okay, you're Beth. She didn't care. And there was something about that transaction that made me realize, oh, actually nobody cares <laughs> or nobody has to care. And with a, with a name that is unremarkable, like Beth, people can write it down, not ask me a further question. There's no follow-up. It's done. And it was this moment of freedom is what it felt like. Yeah. It's almost like you've, you say this, I think the exact word you use are that you're finding some space being Beth. Yes. It's like having another secret identity. Right. So is Beth different from Bic? Is she different at all? Outwardly, inwardly? 
Yeah. Is this where I talk about myself in the third person? Sure. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I can do that. I'm not sure. Okay. I'm going to try it. I've never done that. So Beth (laughs) is less self-conscious. Beth is more of an extrovert. Bic is completely shy, self-conscious, an introvert, and doesn't even know if those are the same thing as being traumatized or what. Those are all kind of combined for Bic. But Beth is a little bit more what have you. She's like, okay, I'm just going to walk through the world in a slightly more confident way. Not really confident, but just slightly more. And that feels to Beth like a great stride, a sense of, of having a great forward stride in life. Is Beth tied to culture in the same way that Bic is? Beth is, it's not like I really like the name, and it's also usually a nickname for Elizabeth. Elizabeth, right. Which mm-hmm. I don't feel like an Elizabeth at all. Yeah, she's a little too proper for me. I will support Elizabeth Bennett, but I'm definitely not in Elizabeth Bennett's league. I mean, it's very notable that Elizabeth Bennett, her nickname was Lizzie. That makes sense for her. I'm not a Lizzie. I feel like I'm way quieter. (laughs) And so Beth is sort of mousier, actually. You know, think of Beth from Little Women. It's it's just slightly a mousier name. And that suits me because I would rather be a little bit under the radar, but not in the shadows the way I always felt that I was when I was big. So interesting. Hey, Sharon. Hey, Remen. How are folks still racist? I know, right? We're like two decades into the 21st century. (laughs) Yeah. And second question, where's my jetpack? Well, I can't help you there, Remen, but have I got a podcast for you. Modern Minorities is a show where each week, my longtime pal Remen and I uncover common and uncommon truths that we all need to hear for our majority brains and ears. Sharon and I have spoken to doctors, lawyers, directors, comic creators, startup hustlers, climate activists, angry Asians, getaway car drivers, politicians, athletes, chefs, writers. Folks who are black, brown, yellow. Is saying yellow racist? White, gay, straight, and everything in between. Past guests have included comedian Margaret Cho, community policing mayor Svante Myrick, representative Jennifer Gaunt Gershowitz, Southern Poverty Law Center journalist Geraldine Mariba, Good Talk author Mira Jacob, Peloton instructor Sam Yeo, comics creator Jean Lu Yang, and many, many more. We've even talked about Ramadan, Diwali, Lunar New Year's, Black History Month, Kamala Khan, and Robin being queer. It's like we're trying to solve racism with the podcast. Challenge accepted. So check out Modern Minorities at modmypod.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Remember, we're all modern minorities, but we're no one's model minority. There's so much on the show and just in my life, I think about Asian identity and how I hate the catch-all term of we're Asian, right? India is very different from Vietnam, is very different from China, is very different from Myanmar right? And, but the kind of dominant Asian cultures in my life are Chinese culture, that of my wife and my podcast co-host is another person, right? And even on the world stage, and then obviously India. But I contrast those two. And I sometimes find a lot of Southeast Asian cultures kind of threading the needle between those two personality wise, and not to diminish them, but, and it comes to naming specifically, right? So Chinese Americans 
ha- literally have a dual identity. My wife and Sharon, I'm guessing you, you have your, you're almost like your anglicized name, but you have a Chinese name as well, right? Mm-hmm. And, right. but Indian people, and I don't know if it's because English is such a dominant part of our culture because of colonization, et cetera. We use Indian names. There's no Amer. I mean, we have the Starbucks name, the Roman. Mm-hmm. My my late uncle Baldev went by Dave at work. If you have to, right? And I've I've just noticed that like dichotomy. Indians own the Indian name and the weird Indianness that is the Indian name. Whereas Chinese people are like, no, we're gonna have two different names. Even some of the Chinese Chinese people I've worked with in other countries, they will only do business with their Western name. And I guess. Have you, Beth, in in your kind of dealings with the world as an Asian American, have you observed those differences between other Asian cultures? I mean, obviously, specifically with Vietnamese Americans, do they do the Starbucks thing? Do they want to own their name? What have you seen about kind of the adoption of names within the the subcultures of Asian America? Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I've noticed that, that what you call the ownership of Indian names I've always admired that and sort of been in awe of it. I hate it. Let's be clear. It made my life hell. (laughs) But yeah, Sundar Pichai, Indra Nuhi, etc. Yeah, I have always thought it was wonderfully real and slightly defiant at the same time. And I've actually wondered, like, why? what's wrong with... The rest of us, why can't we do that? No, but more? Vietnamese people, no, hang on one second. Really, the thing I love, I don't know why my wife and I have this massive predilection for Vietnamese culture from our time traveling there, literally on vacation in Virginia. We've spent all of our time at a Vietnamese shopping center getting our food, but wonderfully defiant. That's part of Vietnamese culture, in my opinion. You guys have that, don't you? And then doesn't that translate to name? I mean, you would think. <laughs> <laughs> But I don't know. I think the Vietnamese experience in America is also just so heavily defined by the war. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, Yeah. And when we are defined by the war, what I mean is that we are defined by how Americans and specifically white Americans, how they think about the war and therefore how they think about Vietnamese people. How do they think about the war? That Vietnamese people are to blame. It was... A regular part of my growing up, and actually a regular part of my adulthood too, that white people would say things to me about, oh, people in my family went to war for your people. And I would always have to say, well, guess what? So did my people. (laughs) We were in that war too. And we were actually fighting on the same side. And a lot of people didn't actually know that, which is a real lapse in what history is taught here, maybe. A lot of people did not know why we were even in the United States. I was like, what do you think? We we actually are, were on the losing side. That's why we're here. And they would be like, oh, and not really quite even understand that in many ways, because a lot of times we were just viewed as the enemy, as the foreign enemy that caused all these Versus problems. Versus in reality, it was a civil war, right? Yeah. And also just we were a very uncomfortable reminder of a huge amount of loss. And that perspective never takes into account the amount of loss that Vietnamese people went through. The same thing. So for, I feel like history repeats itself in this country because with the Middle East, mm-hmm. 
Afghanis and Iraqis, right? And yeah, because there's and with the refugee crisis, people who are helping our soldiers over there, whether or not you agree with the war, my point is, but we're not letting those people come over now, right? That have literally, and it's just like history is repeating itself. And then anti-Arab hate. It's just, sorry, history is a very frustrating thing. It's just like we forgot the lessons of one and just go straight into the next. Well, I do think that's partly because Americans for so long have really just wanted to have such a narrow definition of what America is. I hear or, it's a melting pot. That's what I or what it should mean. Yeah, that's a melting pot. You come here and you disappear into the fondue. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. And so one of the sad truths about being here as a refugee or as an immigrant is that we are forced, asked, required all the time to think about the white American perspective. We are as, asked as if to that's live the default, that. right? Mm-hmm. And it's it's a little bit soul crushing because we are told that that perspective matters way more than our own. And then it's just we spend the rest of our lives trying to reckon with that, trying to fight against it, trying to reclaim something that is actually ours. How do your children identify themselves? Do they say, I'm Vietnamese, I'm American? And the reason I ask is because my daughter's starting to ask, what am I? And she's a little younger than your son's. Oh, yeah. My kids identify as Asian. They identify as Vietnamese. And we talk about things all the time having to do with identity and having to do with colonization and imperialism, things that I didn't know until I got to college. I figure there's no time to waste. They need to know this now. It's just, it's never too early to begin discussions about race and racism. You mentioned your husband's American. Is he white American or is he Vietnamese? Yeah, he's white. He's a white guy. Okay. So your kids are mixed race like ours are. I say ours, yeah. like Roman and I have kids together, yeah. but we don't. <laughs> God, no. No, but but there's this interesting thing, a term I've learned on this podcast, which, again, I'm I'm a pretty stupid guy, but this idea of passing, right? Are you white passing? Are you black passing, etc. But half Asian kids, oh, my daughter's all Asian. She's just, but Sharon's kids are black passing, even though, but your kids, I would imagine, look Asian. Or to, to the white kid on the school bus, your kids are Asian. Barack Obama was a black president, even though he was half white. How does the world perceive your kids, I guess? Asian as well? That is an interesting question that I have sort of been asking myself because I'm not really sure yet. <laughs> and, and because they're young and they're still growing. But the weird thing is there are so many, what we call, people call mixed kids. There's so many mm-hmm. that it's- in your, In your area? Yes, definitely. Yeah. And and where we lived in California. And it was, I think it's a category of its of its own now. Yeah, but here's where I struggle with that. I, I agree. I, I wholeheartedly agree. All Americans are mixed. I'm sorry, your white husband is mixed. I'm guessing. Yeah. I don't, I know nothing about it. But my white neighbor is got a Polish grandfather and a French great auntie. America, ultimately, two to three generations in, we're all mixed. It just happens to be that the mixing is now not all white mixing. Does that make yeah, like we're, we're, mm-hmm. we're mixing some more melanin into the into the melt. Yeah, we're all going to be a shade of brown five generations out, aren't we? Because your sons, I think about our kids specifically, my parents wanted 
what it's the wrong word because what they knew what they didn't know what they expected what they didn't expect was i was going to marry a nice indian girl and i did it it's fine because they raised me in alabama i didn't meet a lot of indian girls right and i dated some but now i have a half chinese half indian daughter and i don't think i'm going to have the expectation 20 years from now that she meets a half chinese half indian boy or girl Right. <laughs> right. Like, you that's never hard. know. That's a, well, no, because I made that same argument to my parents. What do you expect? It's hard enough to meet a girl that'll date a nerd like me, and she has to be <laughs> Indian, and she has to be Punjabi, and she has to be this cast. No, come on. That's we're in Alabama. Get out of here. When your parents, they were okay with that. They were like, "Yeah, do you do you?" No, it took. I mean, I had to make these arguments, right? And I brought home some Indian girls, and it, it's. I guess my point is, it's. Your sons, do you want your sons to meet? I know we all we all want to be woke and we all want to say a certain thing, but you don't necessarily need a half Vietnamese, half white partner for your sons later on in life. Sharon, you don't need a half black, no. half Chinese, never mind from Alabama or from Chinatown or from Michigan or God forbid, Ohio, right? right? right. I think that to me, that's where the melting pot actually happens. The melting pot doesn't happen in generation one or two. It happens in generation two or three when it happens when you're not looking. But I, I am curious about my own kids, if they are going to find someone who is Asian or black or something else completely. There is a part of me that's curious to know what's going to happen. Well, here, this, your, your situation is interesting, Sharon. And Beth, I'd love to know your take. But Sharon's kids, they're black passing and they will be perceived in America as black people more than Asian, I think. And so as a result, because of that identity and understanding that they will have with being black men they might seek out other quote unquote black people who understand their experience right. because it's the black reality is harder than the Asian. It's different. I'm not saying ah, I need to be careful. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. It's a different I, experience. It is. Or maybe they'll come back with a Russian partner completely, completely different. I you know, know what I honestly think is that it's not my problem. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's true. It's their problem because yeah, relationships are hard. They have to deal with the next iteration of TikTok or whatever the yeah. hell it's going to yeah. be when they get older. That's not my problem. They're going to have to deal with those relationships. My job is to help them be better people so they can be good in a relationship or with other people in any kind of capacity. But whomever they end up with, I actually want no say in that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I do not want to be involved. (laughs) You're so wise, Beth. (laughs) I just want them to know how to talk to people in a way that is generous and thoughtful and not full of gaslighting. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. You don't, the one thing we want for our children is we want them to be happy. We want them to be self sufficient. And I don't want my kid to be an asshole. And I don't want her to meet an asshole or end up with an asshole. That's it. That's literally respect yourself and figure it out. I'll equip you as best I can. Yeah, that sounds, it sounds so easy. And yet, <laughs> yet there are a lot of assholes out there. I think the discrimination where the discrimination is really going to come is around interests. And to be clear, my wife and I have very opposite interests in things, but it's like, let's pretend, I'll just play play up the Michigan OSU thing. Beth, let's pretend your entire family are like diehard Wisconsin or Michigan fans. It would be terrible to have an Ohio fan in the family, right? Or if I'm a big Star Trek nerd, 
gosh, you better not be into Star Wars. And I'm into both. I'm an equal nerd. I actually didn't know those two things were opposed. Oh, my God. How, <laughs> we're not friends, Beth. <laughs> Beth, you and I should hang out. I, I, was, I, thought, I, I guess I assumed references. that I have no they were almost talking about. You just discriminate against all nerds equally. Got it. Yeah. Well, they both had the word star in it. So I guess I thought they were fairly similar. <laughs> meet me like on If my you other like podcast. one, you should like the other. Beth, meet me on my other podcast. <laughs> Sorry. No, it's all good. I am not a person who has strong allegiances to any kind of brand or sports team or whatever. I just don't. I'm just not that kind of person. And so therefore, if my kid wants to go to the Ohio State, I'd be like, okay, whatever, if you really want to. Right. But there's there's nothing. There, there's not like you like Coke better than Pepsi. There's not like a I thing don't like either. Dying. Fair. But no, there's no thing you want to die on your sword for the difference between. Yeah. Like, no. What's your- my goodness, what, no, what there's so many fire. options out there. But what's your passion? What is the, what's something that's, that you're not willing to compromise? I mean, I have a lot of strong opinions about food and ingredients, but the fact is there are so many options out there. If one is not there for me, there's going to be another one. If I don't have the ingredients to make a lemon cake, that's okay. I can make a chocolate cake. Do you know what I mean? It's fine. That's a great and so, that, that to me is like I don't know. I don't necessarily different things. Lemon cake versus chocolate cake. No, hang on, They're hang different. on, hang on. Because you, <laughs> you mentioned you drive and you don't walk. What kind of car do you drive? What brand? Oh, you're talking to me? Yeah, Beth. Oh. <laughs> Nobody ever asks me that question. I am a very sensible academic. I have a Subaru. Okay. Well, we have two Subarus. I love Subaru. I also listen to NPR, as you can yeah, oh, Okay. <laughs> Boom. So here, here's where I'm going to prove you wrong, Beth. Just, <laughs> man, I'm, I'm ready. So you probably don't want a Hummer and you probably don't like Fox News. Right. There you go. So what wait, if, what, what, what has if, that proven? I don't know. I'm just having fun. Your, <laughs> how would you feel if your son brought home a girl that drove a Hummer and listened to Fox News? Ooh. Yeah, would that would, I mean, yeah. that would be, it would get complicated for sure. <laughs> I mean, it definitely would, but... It's not like relationships aren't without that kind of complication, <laughs> but that's still like, I'm going to really try to make that now my business. Do you know what I mean? Until you see the Hummer in your driveway yeah, exactly. a couple times a week. <laughs> but the other thing I really definitely know is that being a, a parent is also being very familiar with failure. Yeah. Every like day. a lot of failure. and. Hopes and dreams that have to get <laughs> radically revised. My wife and I have this theory that because we're both huge nerds on so many levels, and we're like, oh my God, our daughter's going to be cool and popular <laughs> and not into comic books. <laughs> <laughs> we're so screwed. Oh no. <laughs> my parents were not the tiger parent type at all, which I think, I don't know how unusual that is, but my parents did not pay attention to my grades. They didn't ask to see my report card. They didn't even know when I got my grades. Wow. So everything that I did, and I did care about grades, everything I did in terms of my scholarships and all that stuff, it was not for them. I never asked for their validation. They didn't even know that I was applying to college. They had no say in it. They didn't pay for any of my college. They didn't, they were not involved at all never helped me with homework. They were just kind of, they were doing their own thing. What did, did they have opinions about your, your now husband? Did they have expectations of who they thought you should marry? No, they didn't. My parents are 
bizarrely chill about a lot of things. <laughs> I was about to say they're, biz- they're bizarrely yeah. cool. Yeah, man. <laughs> no, but they're, cool. I mean, they, they, trust me, there was a lot of dysfunction and conflict when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s. There was a plenty of conflict in our household. And then after my siblings and I all went to college and left, maybe we finally gave my parents the space they needed to calm down. And now they're chill. I've observed the same thing. And again, while there was more tiger or dragon parenting in my household, it's once my sister and I kind of could prove to them that we had our life under control, mom and dad got really chill. (laughs) Because, okay, you clearly have got this. I can give you my opinion, but you know what? You're going to do your own thing. I I literally feel like my mom or dad said that about me one time. It's like, at some point, we just figured you've got this. Wow. Again, yeah, this was like in my mid twenties. This was my mid twenties when that happened. Yeah, I, I definitely never heard that. I never heard that. But then again, I was never pressured to go into dentistry or whatever. They didn't actually have any preference about what I should do. <laughs> which, which is why I became English major, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> There's, I we have a running joke about English majors in my household, and we're the best. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Here's what I say. Here's where you are the best. The English majors that we have met on this podcast have proven to me how awesome you guys are. I'll actually say something. You know, I wanted to be an artist, and my dad was like a very small percentage of them do very, very well. And I think that's where the doctor, lawyer, engineer pressure comes from. Like, you know, if you work hard, you become an engineer, become a doctor, it's guaranteed success. And I think with English majors, you are seeing success and notoriety, as are many authors and professors. But that's not it's a harder path, I think. And I think that's why the parents, the Asian parents have that pressure or that their mind or their preconceived notion of what success is. But that that was my dad's point of view on becoming an artist versus not. Mm-hmm. But it's all a hard path. But I would argue yeah. from a perception standpoint, as a parent putting on false expectations on your children's lives, you want what's easiest. I think some paths are harder than others, or they look harder than others, I should say. I guess, Beth, if you could tell your past self, that girl who was coming up in Michigan, what would you tell your past self? What advice would you give her? I'm going to focus on a moment that happened right before I started kindergarten. I did not go to preschool. I went to kindergarten. And I was one of the youngest, maybe the youngest in my kindergarten class. And I remember the morning I started kindergarten, I put on this little sort of silky red vest that I had, which I adored. And it had it tied with little tiny white pom-poms, which I thought was the most beautiful thing ever. And I went to the bathroom. We had this ranch house and we had this one bathroom. And to see myself full length in the mirror, I had to stand on the edge of the bathtub. So I went to the bathroom. I stood on the bathtub and I looked at myself in the mirror and I tied the little fluffy pom-poms of this you know, silky red vest. And I said to myself, you're going to school. You are, you're on your own now. You have to take care of yourself. Nobody is going to take care of you. You are on your own. And that is exactly what I felt. That was to me, this is what school is. This is what life is. And I was just not quite five years old telling myself that I was alone. No one was going to take care of me out there in that harsh world of school. And go do this. Kind of like giving myself a pep talk. And that's what I did. And I had my family, my grandmother who lived with us, always taking care of us. I had a lot of love and safety at home. 
for the most part. But I knew that as soon as I left the safety of my grandmother's kitchen and everything that she offered to us, that I was alone out there in this American, white, English-speaking world, and no one was going to help me find my way. And so I would look back (laughs) and tell her, you know what? You're right. Actually, that is kind of true. But there are a lot of other people out there feeling the exact same thing, and you need to find them. You need to look for them. That's really beautiful. Beth, we've covered so much ground, and I think that you seem like you're ready for speed round. Roman, what do you think? (laughs) She's ready for speed round? Speed round! (laughs) No one's ever ready for speed round. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I have faith in you, though, Beth. I think you can do this. What is one thing about you that no one expects? No one expects that I have gone skydiving by myself. Ooh, that's exciting. Not jumping tandem, literally just yeah, jumping that, out of that, alone. That's a Lizzie thing. That's such it was a not tandem. Thing. That's such a Lizzie Whoa, thing. That is I'm not saying I would do it thing. again. I would not do that again. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a Beth statement. Yeah. <laughs> the skydiving yeah. Lizzie. Exactly. <laughs> is there a book or a movie that has characters that you really relate to? Oh, so many. Okay. I'm going to start with a book from childhood called Harriet the Spy. Nice. (laughs) By Louise Fitzhugh. That was my favorite book throughout childhood. And I was Harriet. She's just wandering around New York, spying on people and writing it down in her (laughs) notebook. I want to do that. I remember that book. It was a good book. What is your favorite mom dish? What is my favorite mom dish? Yeah. So what's something that your mom made for you that's your favorite? Oh, well, my mom was not a good cook whatsoever. Oh, <laughs> you, can make, you can make it a grandma dish. Can I make it a grandma it. dish? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you can make a grandma dish. Yeah. What's your favorite grandma dish? She made this. She was a really fantastic cook. One of the things that she made that was our comfort food was this very sort of sweet, salty shrimp curry with green onions. And I could still see exactly the way it would look in the bowl. That sounds yummy. And what would you say is your best mom dish for your own kids? Oh, that is a fine question. I make a ton of food for my kids. And besides all the cakes, something that I've been making, <laughs> a lot of cakes, a lot of... I hear, I, And I hear like if there are no lemons, you're, you're still And good. it just becomes I a just, chocolate cake chocolate, and it's yeah. all good. Yeah. I make some really elaborate cakes. I must, I gotta tell you. So... I'm also, I also like to make udon noodles from scratch. Wow. From scratch. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's easier than it sounds. Huh. And I like to make pizza from scratch. Wow. Are those, would they you can say, always count on this. As far as your mom dish, is that the, your go to as a mom dish? If your kids were on this podcast five to 10 years from now and I asked, what's your favorite mom dish? What's the thing they would say? They might say the udon, but they, Probably would say salmon and couscous. Flip side of that, what is your least favorite food? Oh, okay. Celery, plain celery. (laughs) (laughs) You know when we used to go to parties before the pandemic? Yeah. Yeah. And they're very often. The the crudite crudite platter? Yes. You know, the crudite. (laughs) The crudite with like this, the carrot sticks that have turned white and the celery (laughs) and the dry olives and the freaking hummus in a plastic 
container. I would see those and I'd get so mad. Yeah. And I'd be like, really? I came to a party and I had to eat raw vegetables? That's not a party. <laughs> Since when are raw vegetables a party? That's like a punishment. That's not a party. That's funny. That's so funny. And yeah, I know people are starting to do parties and get togethers again, but let me tell you, that is not something I've ch- that's changed for me. Like I still, I don't care if I'm going to a party tomorrow with everyone. We, we, we should leave past. the crudita in the before times. We need yeah, to move exactly. Forward. I don't yeah. want to encounter that raw celery. What if you put peanut butter and raisins on it? <laughs> would that would that be better or no? That's what they did in my childhood. Yeah. They called it ants on a log. Yeah, ants on a log. That does not <laughs> that does not make it more appealing to call it ants on a log. It makes it worse. I love your rage about celery. I have to say, I don't think I'm a, I don't, I'm not a big fan of celery either. I just never think about it. But now that you've mentioned it, it's definitely, definitely on the bottom of my list. It is a punishment to eat yes. celery. Yeah. I'm with you on that one. Who is someone out there that you would want to interview for a podcast? Keanu Reeves. Keanu Reeves. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's because I have this sequin pillow of Keanu Reeves' face. Still to this day. As one does. As one does. And, <laughs> you don't, Sharon? Well, he's I been don't. that pillow has been in the background of all of my Zoom classes nice. for over a year. And I've just grown really, really fond of him. Keanu Day was supposed to be coming up, but there they released two Keanu movies in a day. But I think that's been delayed. So oh, sad. oh I'll just go hug my pillow. It's all right. <laughs> Beth, last question. What does being a modern minority mean to you? I think the idea of being a modern minority is really fascinating because you can't help but focus on the word modern. And modern is also a really strange word because it's a word that changes. It's a word that can be completely dependent on perspective and on how that perspective shifts. It's a relative term. Like people in the 1920s, thought they were very modern. And so our, our use of the word modern changes depending on context, depending if we're talking about literature or art or design or just where we are right now. And I think that's what I like about it is that to be a modern minority is to be somebody who is aware of changes in perspective, who is aware that we have to keep changing our perspective, that we have to keep growing and have to keep rethinking our positionality. And part of that rethinking is looking back at our history, our shared history, and figuring out what we want the future to be as a result. The only constant in the universe is change, Beth. Beth, thank you. This has just been... I've had so much fun. I I hope we didn't put you on the spot too much. No, we got to a lot of interesting subjects. I'm going to be thinking about your names for some time. So yeah, thank you so much for having me here. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform. For show notes about this episode, links to things mentioned, or requests for sponsorship, visit pgalums.com slash podcast. Follow us on Twitter at pgalumpod. We'd love to hear from you. Learnings from Leaders is a production of the PNG Alumni Network, a global nonprofit founded by former PNGers committed to community, enrichment, and philanthropy. With more than 45,000 registered members worldwide, the network connects alums through global conferences, local chapters, industry events, and online content. 
Our nonprofit foundation supports economic empowerment communities around the world. To find out more, visit pgalums.com. That's it for this week. I've been Roman Segel. And I'm still Andrew Tarvin. Thanks for joining Learnings from Leaders, the PNG Alumni Podcast. We'll see you next time.